0: cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. Welcome to the Science Podcast for April 5th, 2019. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Megan Cantwell talks with freelancer Yao Hua Lau about the controversy over a Malaysian processing plant for rare earth minerals, which are important components for many electronics. And I talk with freelance journalist Sam Keen about science's debt to the slave trade and how historians and museums are confronting the tainted origins of so many natural history collections.
1: Rare earth minerals, REEs for short, are essential in a vast array of technologies, from your smartphone all the way to electric vehicles. But the processing to extract these minerals results in radioactive waste. I'm Megan Cantwell, and I'm here with science writer Lao to talk about how this radioactive waste has created a standoff in Malaysia, the site of the only sizable REE processing plant besides China. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. So what elements are considered REEs?
2: So rare earth elements, or REE, as you mentioned, is about 15 elements in what we call the latinite series. So the elements with the atomic number 57 to 71. And they are actually not that rare. They are over 800 commercially viable deposits worldwide.
1: So these ores are coming from Australia. Why are they processed in Malaysia?
2: The reasons given by Linus is that it's for economic purposes. They say that it is cheaper. And then the site where they chose, Kuantan, it's an industrial park. You get chemical plants, you get petrochem. All the things that Linus say they need for their processes here, they have it in Kuantan. Another reason that they gave is that Malaysia is on a major economic trade route. So it's closer to China, closer to Japan, which is a major customer of Linus, closer to Europe.
1: So environmental groups in Malaysia have opposed Linus since it started. Why is that?
2: The main concern at the time was the radioactive waste that Linus produces. In the processing, once you take out the rare earth oxides, you are left with all these solids, right? And it has thorium and, and uranium, so it is radioactive mildly radioactive and so if you can imagine locals and malaysians you know having this imagery of like 1.5 million tons of residues sitting like a big number (laughs) but not 1.5 million tons are radioactive so the radioactive waste up till the end of 2018 is at more than 450 thousand tons
1: how is it currently stored
2: well it is stored in what linus calls a residue storage facility. Basically, it just just piled up there. (laughs) just piled above ground. So they do cover it with like a black lining. The lining is way not as effective at blocking the radiation as compared to if they just seal it away in a permanent disposal facility, like underground, seal it off. That's the recommended way. One of the recommended ways to deal with this uh, radioactive residue. This temporary storage is exposed to natural elements and the area is prone to floods about every four to five months of the year the northeastern coast of peninsular malaysia where kuantan is is battered by monsoon storms and when it's very dry the area is a peat swamp forest and so it's also susceptible to fires
1: The government changing over, they've tightened the regulations on Linus. Is there a chance if they don't comply with this, that the plant will be shut down?
2: As the situation stands now, if they do not ship the radioactive waste out of Malaysia, they will not get their operating license renewed and Linus will have to shut down.
1: And they've said this probably isn't feasible, so it's kind of at a stalemate.
2: Yeah, from one angle, it looks like a stalemate, doesn't it? But there are definitely actions behind the scenes. Just a few weeks ago, the ministry has said that they have established a task force to facilitate the removal of radioactive waste from Malaysia to Australia. And in response to that comment from the ministry, Linus said that they know nothing about it. (laughs) They knew nothing about this action or or this task force. So where are they now?
1: Right, they're kind of out
2: of sync. You know, to us, they're out of sync. But are they really out of sync behind the scenes? We don't know. But there are other countries involved in this whole scenario, in this whole dynamics. One of those countries is Japan. Because Japan, they have a very strong electric vehicle industry. And electric vehicles require permanent magnets. And permanent magnets require rare earth oxides. And the majority of their rare earth oxides for their permanent magnets come from Linus. So Japan has provided, I think, 250 million or 200 million loan to Linus a few years ago. Part of the deal says that Linus has to provide a certain amount of rare earth oxides to Japan. So without question, Linus' supply is crucial for Japan. And so in December, if I remember correctly, it was in December, the Japanese embassy here in Malaysia has even come out to say that they would take action to intervene if necessary in this dynamics that's going on between Linus and Malaysia. Very strong words, isn't it?
1: If Linus were to have to shut down, how would this impact other countries?
2: So Linus processes and produces like 10% of the world's rare earth oxides now. But for the countries involved, for example, Japan, they, they, they would have to turn to another source. In that case, most likely China. So if you don't have Linus, China becomes in all sense the only other supplier of rare earth oxides. So <laughs> if Linus goes down, the rest of the world has no choice as of now but to buy from China. Really interesting.
1: Why can't they build a permanent facility nearby in Malaysia? Does Malaysia not want a permanent facility to store this underground?
2: That's like the essential question. I don't know why Linus is not building the permanent disposal facility. In fact, they were supposed to have located the place to build the permanent disposal facility like a long time ago, like within 10 months of their operations. But they have not done it. And as to whether Malaysia wants it, yes. Up till May 2018, before we had a change in government, it has always been very clearly, in fact, in the contracts and in the conditions for liners to operate here that you try to recycle. If you cannot then build a permanent disposal facility and you have to start looking for it now. The previous government did want a permanent disposal facility if recycling did not work. But now the new government and the new ministry is requesting that liners remove all of its radioactive waste, all of its 450,000 tons of radioactive waste. No, nope, we do not want a permanent disposal facility. <laughs> no, just remove all the radioactive waste. All
1: right. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you very much.
1: Yahua Lau is a science writer based out of Malaysia. You can find a link to his story at sciencemag.org slash podcasts.
0: Stay tuned for my interview with Sam Keen on the slavery-tainted history of many natural history collections. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Magellan TV. Magellan TV is a new type of documentary streaming provider determined to bring you the finest documentaries from around the globe. Magellan TV has been built By documentary filmmakers, and new programs are added on a weekly basis. They offer documentary movies, series, and exclusive playlists across a wide variety of genres. They have the deepest collection of high-quality science programs available anywhere across physics, engineering, evolution, health, biology, space, history, nature, whatever you can think of, they've got a documentary. They even have science playlists created specifically for science enthusiasts. Watch anytime, anywhere, on your TV, laptop, or your mobile device, if that's your thing. Enjoy a wide selection of these programs at 4K without additional cost, and you can stream those documentaries, even in 4K, without interruptions. Magellan TV is now compatible with Roku, iOS, and Android, with the ability to cast to most popular streaming services. So whether you want to explore deep space or the deep ocean, check out Magellan TV. Start your exclusive two-month free trial today at MagellanTV.com slash science magazine. That's Magellan magellant com slash science magazine. This week's episode is also brought to you in part by KiwiCo. KiwiCo creates super cool hands-on projects for kids that make learning about Steam fun. With a KiwiCo subscription, each month, the kid in your life will receive a fun, engaging new project, which will help develop their creativity and confidence. The projects are designed to spark tinkering and learning in kids of all ages. All projects, inspiration, and activities are created by a team of product designers in-house and rigorously tested by kids. Every crate includes all the supplies needed for that month's project. Detailed, easy to follow instructions, and an educational magazine to learn even more about that crate's theme. KiwiCo inspires kids to see themselves as makers, and it's on a mission to empower kids not just to make a project, but to make a difference. KiwiCo is offering Science Magazine podcast listeners the chance to try them for free. To redeem this offer and learn more about their projects for kids of all ages, visit kiwico.com/magazine. That's kiwico.com/magazine. K I W I C O.com/magazine. Now we have freelance journalist Sam Keane. He's here to talk to us about a feature story he wrote on the contributions of the slave trade to early science. Hi Sam. Hi, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm really curious about what uh, made you decide to write the story. This is so different than the last thing that I think you wrote for science. What caught your attention about this?
3: It was something that I had never really thought about before. Uh, You know, I'm I'm a book writer. I write a lot of history-type stories. And it's something I'd never really come across, the idea that early science was really heavily dependent on slavery in that you usually think about, um, you know, the big, great names of science like Isaac Newton or Robert Hooke, those people, and they seem kind of removed, like they're not really involved in society, like they're almost sort of floating above it. But of course, they were, you know, people living in and among their times, you know, dealing with the day to day things that everyone dealt with back then. And slavery was such a big part of Europe's economy back then that it does make sense that there would be connections between something like science and slavery. But historians just really hadn't gone through the work of putting it all together yet. And I realized that there were several historians actually working independently on this topic. It seemed like it was something they were finally sort of digging into and realizing how extensive the connections actually were.
0: You actually talk a little bit in your story about why this connection hasn't been made or, or kind of talked about as much. And it's not just people never thought about it, but there's also some other things that are pushing back on this idea.
3: Yeah, there's really a little bit of discomfort, frankly. A few of the historians mentioned that we usually think about science in these really progressive terms. We think it's a force for good in the world. And for the most part, I think it is a force for good in the world. But it's not always a force for good, or probably more accurately, it is sort of entangled in these other things that uh, are morally problematic. And this is a really good example of that. And it's just sort of hard for scientists and historians to To face that, there's a natural tendency when there's something we don't like, especially if it's deep in the past, to want to ignore it or try to bury it a little bit. And I think that's part of the reluctance is that people just haven't wanted to look at it. And even more than that, admit just how extensive the connections were.
0: Yeah, well, let's get into that. We're talking about a particularly brutal time in the history of a brutal practice. Um, the time between the 1500s and the 1800s where millions of people were taken from Africa and set on these incredibly long, arduous journeys. These long journeys is kind of what attracted the attention of naturalists, people interested in collecting these kinds of specimens. Can you talk about where these specimens were collected and who was doing it?
3: Yeah. So a lot of the people were basically piggybacking on slave trade ships because most of the ships going to it was what they called the triangular trade was going from Europe to Africa to the Caribbean or to South America and then back to Europe, shipping goods or people at each step. And most of the ships doing that triangular trade were merchants. They were private people uh, trying to make a profit off of a business. The naturalists who wanted to go to those places in Africa and in Latin America basically had no choice but to hitch a ride with the slavers that were doing this work. So it was basically a question of access. And if they didn't, go along with the the slavers, they wouldn't be able to get to Africa. They wouldn't be able to get to the Caribbean or to places in South America. And then once they got there, they were very dependent on them for food, for equipment, for, you know, mail, just kind of the basic things you would need to get by. So the whole infrastructure of slavery was really important to not only getting to those places, but being able to do work and then ship your specimens back later.
0: Some of these science folks, they actually did not go on the trips, but rather sent deputies or paid people to collect when they were in these different locations.
3: Yeah. In the story, I talk about a guy named James Petiver who was one of these sort of armchair naturalists. He was sitting in London paying people. Uh, sometimes he would even pay slaves to collect specimens for him, which was very unusual at the time. But as often, he was working with ship surgeons or in some cases ship captains who would go to these far-flung places. And especially the ship surgeons, when they were on shore, didn't have much to do because their main job was to take care of the slaves on the voyage. And they were often scientifically trained, so he would employ them to sort of go around and collect specimens and then send them back to him. And he eventually ended up, James Pettiver ended up with the biggest natural history collection in the world, in part because he was willing to employ people in the slave trade to help him get mm-hmm. specimens in far-flung places.
0: Are there people who at that time just did not like slavery, didn't want to participate, and so refused, or or was it if you were interested in natural history, this is the way you had to do it, and it was kind of accepted?
3: It was kind of accepted overall. There were always people who opposed it on moral grounds, especially as you get into the later 1700s, early 1800s. That's when you really start to see some momentum building against the slave trade and in slavery in general. And especially among the Quakers, they were the ones who really, really pushed this. And there were a fair number of scientists, uh, naturalists who were also Quakers. I don't talk about them as much in the story, but they were opposed to it and tried as much as they could to avoid it and to avoid piggybacking on the slave trade. But in some cases, it was basically impossible to avoid.
0: The things they were collecting Exotic animals, insects, eggs, plants—all these different kinds of things. What are they for? It's one thing to collect, but how do they like contribute to science?
3: So, a couple things, couple reasons. Uh, One, this was the era in the kind of early to mid 1700s, especially when Carl Linnaeus came out with his famous system of taxonomy. It's the binomial naming system of Homo sapiens and Tyrannosaurus rex that we all know and use today. This came out during the middle of the kind of the peak of the slave trade. And so people were really interested in getting as many animals, insects and uh, plants as possible and organizing and classifying them. So one thing was just to catalog the sheer abundance of flora and fauna in the natural world. So that was a big part of the project. And people were also interested in sort of seeing how... Plants and animals differed from one place to the other. I talk about it in the story about how they consider this sort of the big science of the day, in that there would be these central repositories where you would have a bunch of plants and animals from Africa, from Latin America, from South America, that you could sort of compare. And it was important to have them all in one place, So the idea of organizing the taxonomy, but also having these big repositories they could work in were both really important parts of science at the time.
0: Mm -hmm. There was also, people were grabbing up drugs and and chemicals for dyes, those kinds of things that that actually would make money. So maybe you're not making money off of an ostrich egg, but if you have something that could heal or contribute to manufacturing, then you get into the money side of things.
3: Yeah. So there was a lot of commercial activity going on. They wanted drugs like uh, quinine was very important, fighting malaria, other drugs that they coveted, and dyes like indigo and I believe it's brown cochineal. I'm not not sure on that, but it was a dye that they distilled from a beetle, basically. And those were big money makers. The merchants would go to the scientists to help them understand how to collect these things, how to cultivate them. So in some cases, The scientists were actually helping out the merchants, and when the merchants started to expand their work, that would in turn kind of allow them to expand their commercial enterprises, which sort of increased the demand for slavery. So inadvertently, science ended up in some ways kind of expanding the slave trade in these areas.
0: The specimens that we're talking about today are seated throughout museums the world over. And as you describe in your story, you know, samples gathered through the slave trade were part of the beginnings of the British Museum. Is this acknowledged in those places?
3: So it is acknowledged. It's not something as someone told me that they really uh, advertise or really push a lot, but they don't deny it. People ask them and they tell them, frankly, that, you know, a lot of these specimens were collected via the slave trade. It's been difficult for them. I think this realization was kind of late in coming in that uh, a lot of the records for these things were lost or destroyed or just incomplete. So it took a lot of work to piece together the fact that there was this connection to slavery. And as we were saying before, there's a bit of a reluctance to want to face some of this history in some cases. So some people were probably sort of willing to look away. So again, it's something that they're, they're acknowledged and they know about, and they're probably acknowledging more now than they used to. But it is still a difficult topic for a lot of museums to deal with.
0: This kind of makes me think of, you know, when museums have things in their collection that were gathered in another country. We're talking the Elgin marbles or, you know, materials that are transported a long time ago. And now those countries want them back. Is there some parallel here to that?
3: It's definitely a parallel situation in that uh, you see these same sort of controversies. There's probably less, controversy over the items themselves, because in some cases, you know, it's some plant leaves or something. They're not unique. They're not that special. But there was definitely an exploitation of the people there. And in some cases, it was, you know, the same countries kind of sweeping in and just grabbing what they wanted and leaving. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely parallels here, even if, say, you know, they're not going to fight over like some cocoa leaves or something. But there's definitely this idea or this uh, sense that, it was unfair and that it was a real exploitation of these uh, other countries.
0: Well, as you mentioned, several people are writing books on this topic. Is there anything else that's being done to help people understand the origins of some of these materials?
3: Right now, it's mostly the historians working on these things and just sort of showing how extensive the, the connections were between science and slavery. Some of the individual museums are going through and digitizing their records and trying to make those records more available and more readily searchable and indexable. So that will help also kind of pin down the origins of some of their specimens. Because even if, you know, it's not going to say like collected by a slave, because in a lot of cases, they didn't even acknowledge that the slaves were helping them collect or that they were getting this help from them. But if you know when it was collected and where it was collected, and you know there was, say, a slave port there, in some cases, it becomes very, Obvious, uh, you can piece it together like that. So there is some work on that uh, front as well.
0: Okay. Well, thank you so much, Sam. Thanks for having me. Sam Keen is a freelance journalist based in Washington, D.C. You can read his story at slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, many other places, or you can listen to us on the science website. That's where you'll also find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. That's sciencemag.org podcast. The show was produced by Sarah Crespi and Megan Cantwell and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science and our publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.